Thank you to each one who participated in our service this evening. We are moving to a close of our study of the book of Job. We have looked at the speeches of the three friends, and then Elihu's speech, and Job's responses to those speeches. Tonight we look at the first speech of God, who speaks immediately upon Elihu's Conclusion. As we begin, Job knows that he is righteous. And Job is convinced that he is suffering unjustly. Job longs for an opportunity to bring God to a court of justice where he would prove his innocence before God. Job 16.21 Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. If he only had that opportunity to address God like one that would address their neighbor in a dispute. Job knows it would be rebellious to charge God with injustice. Then Job replied, even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Job wishes to know how he could challenge God's justice. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, though I might come to his seat, his seat of judgment, that is. Job knows that his arguments would require a response from God. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Then God would have to defend himself, and Job would get the answer to his questions. I would learn the words which he would answer me and perceive what he would say to me. Job is sure that he would win his case against God. Would he contend with me by his greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Transitional statement. Who is man that he should pass judgment upon God? All too often, mankind is convinced that they can prove themselves right and God wrong in the actions he takes. People say, if only I could speak to God. If only I could make my case. God asked Job a series of questions for which he has no answer. Key verses. Job 40 verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Job is ultimately going to be humbled by a question such as this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I laid my hand on my mouth Once I have spoken, I will not answer, even twice, and I will add no more. God begins his two, that should be speeches, not searches. God begins his two speeches the same way. Job 38.3, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Then again in Job 40.7, Now gird up your loins like a man, I will ask you, and you instruct me. These two speeches have much in common. But they do have a different aim and purpose, of which I'll make that clear as we look at the second speech. 
But God says, instruct me. Cause me to know. Give me answers to my questions. Give me understanding that I don't presently have. That's the challenge that God presents to Job. Theme, God does what the friends cannot do in silencing Job. Remember, Elihu is upset with the friends because they can't answer Job's accusations. Elihu is frustrated with the friends because Job continues to defend himself. They can't shut Job up. Well, neither can Elihu. But guess what? God can. And the first speech is God's simply silencing Job. We are introduced to this speech with the statement that God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Here we are to see a contrast in the way that God spoke to Elijah. Remember, Elijah finds himself in a predicament. He is threatened by Jezebel that he is going to lose his life. And Elijah becomes depressed. He thinks he's the only one in Israel serving God. And uh, he wants to die. And he sits under a tree and just waits for death to come. But God feeds him and God tells him to get up into a mountain where God is going to meet with him. And uh, so Elijah enters a cave and then God calls him out. 1 Kings 19.11 So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. And it came about when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? The way in which God speaks to Elijah is in stark contrast to the way that God speaks to Job. He displays his great power to Elijah and demonstrates the fact that he's not in the the wind. He's not in the the fire. He's not in all these mighty acts. But rather, as the King James says, he speaks to him in a still, small voice. But when he's speaking to Job, he's thundering forth his message. He is revealing his power, his might, his strength. The needs of Elijah and the needs of Job are quite different. And so God addresses them appropriately. God can make distinctions in the needs that are present in our lives. There is such a lesson to be learned in that. Knowing how to respond to an individual in their particular instance. Here God speaks with a great, great power. We're going to find in this speech that Job has overstepped his bounds. He was driven by his friends into a corner. And 
the friends kept saying that Job was in this predicament because of his sin. And Job said, I'm not in this predicament because of my sin. And he says, if I get a chance, I would prove to God himself that I'm not in this predicament because of my sin. To that point, Job is correct. He's not in this predicament because of his sin. The problem is, Job doesn't know why he's in this predicament. And so, Job is forced to the natural conclusion, having been influenced by his friends, that God justly rewards the good and punishes the evil, that in this particular instance then, God must be unjust in what he has done. Because Job knows that he is innocent of the great transgression. What Job should have said is, I don't know why these things are happening to me. I don't understand God. I don't know how he works. I don't get it. Should have been Job's conclusion. We must be extremely careful when we begin to attack the character and justice of God. We need to say, I don't know, I don't understand. And lest you think that Christians can't do that or wouldn't do that, or mature Christians wouldn't do that, well, look at Job. Job did that. And I will give you one instance because it's cited in the Scripture, and we probably all have experienced it to one degree or another. And that is when God teaches about election in Romans chapter 8. He knows that people are going to raise the question of his justice. And God asks the question, Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? Shall the thing made say to his maker, Why have you made me thus? God begins by putting us in our place and saying that is an inappropriate question to ask. That is an inappropriate accusation to make. You can't declare what God does as being unjust. But you see, people think they're actually defending the character of God because in their mind it's unjust. And because it's unjust in their mind, therefore it must be unjust. And God is not unjust, so God wouldn't do it. Except God declares that's what He does do. And so then it's totally inappropriate to charge God with injustice over what He says He will do. Rather, we should seek to understand it. And so then God graciously moves on in Romans chapter 9 and begins to explain a little bit about the nature and character of election. In chapter 8, we kind of have God speaking in a thunderous way. And then chapter 9, we have it like God speaking to Elijah. For those that sincerely wrestle with that question, God is going to help them. But here it is. The difficulty of speculating 
about what God does. Here we need to, to practice great restraint in speculating about the character and person of God, why he does what he does. When I was at Biblical Seminary, I had a tremendous privilege. And that is that uh, the four years that I was there, I was assigned a prayer partner, as was every student uh, that was uh, at Biblical Seminary at the time. But I was assigned as my prayer partner, Dr. Alan, Alan McRae, who at that time was president of Biblical Seminary. And so for the four years that I was there, I met regularly with Dr. McRae to pray. It was a learning experience to be sure. Uh, Dr. McRae is a, a world-famous uh, theologian and a Bible scholar. His uh, books are published in a number of different languages. He was, before the president of Biblical Seminary, the president of um, Faith Seminary, and before that, he was the uh, faculty member of the old Princeton Seminary. And one of the many things that I learned from uh, Dr. McRae was the inappropriateness of speculating about what God's Word says. He was a great uh, advocate of the verse in Deuteronomy that says, The revealed things belong unto us, but the secret things belong unto God. And Dr. McRae had a unique ability to refuse to speculate. What the Bible was silent on, he was going to be silent on. And you've heard this illustration, but some of you haven't, so let me give it to you again. One time, Dr. McRae was at a prophecy conference, a well-known prophecy conference that was held annually. And uh, he was speaking at this prophecy conference, and a question and answer time was scheduled. And so people began to answer, ask him questions, most of which were highly speculative in nature, to which the Bible did not give any answer. And so he simply said, I don't know. And then, then another question was asked. He said, I don't know. And then another question was asked. I don't know. And still another question was asked. He said, I don't know. To which one lady became just infuriated. She just became so upset with him. And she said, Dr. McRae, the speaker we had last year, answered every single one of those questions. And to which he replied, Madam, you should have written it down. Uh, but you see, there is an understanding. Why did she want to hear from him? Because she knew it was speculative. So here, there's one opinion over here. And Dr. McRae, what's your opinion? And next year, when there's another conference and another Bible prophecy speaker, what's your opinion? What's your opinion? But Dr. McRae would not enter those waters. And he simply said, I don't know. We need to understand that one of the greatest answers to life's problems is, I don't know. I don't know. And sometimes we think that it is our responsibility to uh, protect the justice and character of God. What we need to do is say, this is what God does. This is what God has revealed in His Word. And to the degree that he reveals his motivation to the degree that he tells us why he does what he does. We need to answer those questions. But we need to understand that there are many questions he does not answer. And one of them, since I brought it up, is the issue of election. The Bible simply does not tell us 
why he chooses whom he chooses. It tells us why it's not. It's not based on our goodness or our faith, but it positively doesn't say why it is. It is silent on that. So our article on election says, God, for reasons known only to himself, apart from any goodness and foreseen faith in man, chose a people unto himself. We don't have all the answers. Job started off on the wrong foot in trying to answer what he could not answer. So, God silences Job. Number one, did God need Job's help in creating the universe? Job 38, verse 4 to 21. Job was not there when God created the universe. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then there are a whole host of verses that, that just add to that theme. And then verse 21. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Here's God's sarcasm. You can answer all that about creation. You were there. Well, of course he wasn't there. Of course he wasn't there. And that's the point. Job, you weren't there. You don't know. You didn't help. You didn't instruct. You didn't teach. After all, who made all things? Job 38.5. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its foundation? You see, the, the emphasis is on the who. Who did this? If it wasn't you, Job, and you weren't there, then who was it? Who did all this? The answer, see, God made all things. Verse 9, when I made a cloud and its garment and third darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and I set a bolt and labors. It was God. Verse 11, and I said, thus you shall come, but no far further, and there you shall proud waves stop. Not only was Job not there, but God was. And not only was God the one who did it, but he has yet another question for Job. Has Job even come close to doing what God has done? Didn't create, but, but Job, have you even ever done anything in the ballpark? Have you ever done anything that comes close? Do you have any inkling of what this is like? Verse 12. Job 38. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you ever done that? Job, have you ever woken up and told the sun to shine? Have you ever told the sun to set? Just, just once? Just one day in your life? Not that you created it. Not that you made it. Have you ever even commanded it? For one single day? And of course he hadn't. So then God asked Job, Job, do you even understand how creation works? Not that you made it because you didn't. Not that you govern it because you don't. But Job, do you even understand how it works? Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? 
Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Job, do you even understand how it works? We live in a day and age in which people pride themselves in knowledge. And our knowledge has greatly increased. But mankind still cannot create. And mankind still can't govern the universe. And we still are trying to figure out how it works. You know, we've made some progress. But the psalmist says in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Who can know this? Who can understand this? We are desperately trying to figure out how the mind works. How it functions. How does the reasoning process take place? And science is consumed with trying to figure out how our bodies work. How the genetic process goes on. Why it is that we are the way we are. And we can't get to the bottom of it. We can't even figure out how it works. So, Job did not help God. Job did not even come close. And Job doesn't even understand creation. So, the application and implication is, Job, if you don't even understand how creation works, how in the world do you think you're going to explain how I work? What I am doing? What my purpose is all about? How are you ever going to come to grips with what I have in store for you if you don't even know how your own body works? How can you pass judgment on what I'm doing? Number two, God does not need Job's help in governing the universe. Job 38.22, have you offered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? When I have reserved for the times of distress... For the day of war and battle. Job, I govern all things. And I even govern the snow and the hail. And reserve these decisions for the time of distress for the day of war and battle. Well, you think of World War II. And the battle on the Western Front. And the snowstorms that came in. And what a ally they were to the allies. And one of the great reasons for the destruction of the Germans' army. It was the weather. It was the weather. And God says, I govern the weather even to determine the outcomes of war. People gathered together trying to instill their will against another with great armaments and great battles. But God says, by the weather, I control the outcome. Job 
38:24. Where is the way that the light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood, or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people? God says, you know, I, I can send rain on an unpopulated land. I don't need man's help. I don't need some human being there to dig a ditch or irrigate the soil. God says, I can send rain anywhere I want. On a desert without man in it. End of verse 26. To satisfy the waste and desolate land and make the seeds of grass to sprout. I can accomplish my purpose and my will without your help is the thrust of these particular verses. Moving on. Number three. God does not need Job's help in caring for God's creatures. Not only does God oversee creation, not only does He govern it, but He cares for it. He governs for it in a wise way. Job 38-39 Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Do you know the time of the mountain goats that give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Are you there when all these creatures are giving birth? Who is watching over these creatures? Obviously, it's God. There is no man present. God can watch over His creation very, very well. Thank you. And all of these verses, down through page 6, are a reiteration of that thought. God just keeps pounding it home and pounding it home. So, we look at top of page 7. From there... He spies out food. His eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood. And where the stain are, there he is. So these are all the things that God does in governing his creatures and providing for them. So God confronts Job directly. Then the Lord said to Job, it's time for Job to answer these myriad of questions. Is Job in any place to pass judgment on God's decisions? Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? The fault finder. Literally, the one who seeks to set things straight. Job, are you really in a place to tell me the proper way to govern and judge this universe? What's the reply to that? No. No. The lest we get too hard on Job, I would really challenge us to think even about our own prayer lives. How many times do we feel it necessary when we pray to tell God what to do? Rather than really following what I understand the biblical directive is, and that is, cast your care upon Him, for He knows, for He careth for you. Rather than saying, you know, God, I need a job. 
or I need help. I'm at my wit's end. I don't know how I'm going to make it through another month. The money's running out. I've even jumped the course by saying I need a job. There might be some other way that God desires to provide, even as God provided for Elijah with a raven. There might be some other way. But no, we tell God that we need a job. Not only do we tell God we need a job, we tell God what job we need. And we tell God where it is. And when He should respond. And how He should meet that need. We have a tendency to tell God how to run our lives. God, this is what I need. This is who I'm to marry. Make that girl fall in love with me. Make that boy answer me. Make him take me out. We want to govern our own lives. Proverbs says, in all our ways acknowledge Him and He will direct our paths. Simply let God be God. That is really a freeing thought. But unfortunately, that's not how prayer is taught in most circles. We are taught that we need to pray specifically. We need to pray directly, as though God doesn't know. We need to tell God what we want, or we're not going to get it. Most religion is man-centered. The goal is to make our religious faith God-centered. You don't have to pray specifically. What you need to pray is humbly coming before God, expressing what our need is. He taught us how to pray. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Doesn't say, Lord, make this baker pack up his truck and, un- and deliver six loaves. And by the way, make it wonder bread because that's better for me. No, no, that's not what we're to do. We're to say, God, here is my life. Here is my need. Help me to trust you. So, Job is silenced. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. Love that translation. I am insignificant. Literally, one whose opinion doesn't matter. In other words, God, my response shouldn't even be considered. I'm in no place to speak to these issues. Job says, I can't even render a response. Notice the next statement in verse 4 of chapter 40. What can I reply to thee? What can I reply to thee? Literally, what can I return to thee? Here I find a metaphor. I know it's used in a different way, but the metaphor fits. And that is, imagine two people playing tennis. One person is far superior than the other. The superior tennis player throws the ball in the air and is beginning to serve. And he smashes the ball into the court at 110 
miles per hour. And the opponent can't return the ball. Not only can they not return the ball, but they can't even get their racket on it. They can't even get to it. All they can do is watch it go by. They're out of their league. It's in that sense that Job says, I can't return your question. I can't answer that. I can't begin to enter into what you know. So, I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer, even twice, and I will add no more. Job says, I'm done. I have nothing else to say. That's round one. That's an important round. And God speaks to silence Job. And then once Job is silenced, then God begins to teach Job about himself. Now Job is ready to listen. Ready to learn. Application. The greatest lesson we can learn is the need to be silent before God. Just let the Bible speak. Don't pass judgment on what it says. Don't determine for yourself what God should and shouldn't do. Just receive the word. That's what James says when it says, receive the word with meekness. Proverbs, lean not unto your own understanding. Don't begin to wrestle and say, I don't think that's right. That's not, I would, that's not what I would do. Or how in the world can that be? If you ever begin to question, how in the world can that be? Remember that He is the one who made the world. We are constantly driven back to creation to teach us that God is all-powerful, God is all-wise, God is all-knowing, God can do what is right. And we should be silent before Him and not speculate about what He has not said, but rather meekly receive His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to recognize how insignificant we are. We don't want to be humbled in that way. We don't want to acknowledge that our opinion doesn't matter. That we shouldn't even be consulted. But, O oh Lord, help us to know the difference between what You have revealed and what You haven't. May we not be lazy and fail to search the Scriptures diligently or even think that it's not our place to understand the Scriptures because you have said that the revealed things belong unto us. You expect us to know what you have revealed. But Lord, what you have not revealed, help us to realize you have not intended us to understand. And not only have you not intended for us to understand, but it's impossible for us to understand. It's beyond us. You can't even explain to us in a way in which we can understand it. For it is too deep. It is too great. Oh Lord, may we just simply acknowledge to you 
anew and afresh, that you are God and we are not. You are all wise. We are not. You care for this and govern this world. We don't. So, oh God, help us to refrain from a desire to govern this world. May we refrain from telling you what to do, but simply call upon you to act and to move and do what you think is right. And teach us to be patient. Teach us to be trusting. Teach us to rely upon you. And above all, not to defend you or to question you, but to just simply marvel at who you are. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.